Hey everybody, my name is Tyler. I'm the student pastor here at FCC. Welcome to our podcast. We're glad you joined us. Let's get into the word. Good morning, FCC. How are you doing today? I'm so glad to see every one of you out here. I was asked to introduce the speaker this morning. Uh, but um, I'm going to follow suit from last week with uh, Sans Ray. She kind of left us with this challenge of learning to ask questions, especially those difficult questions. So right now I'm going to ask you all a question. Last week, at the end of the service, when Chuck got up here and announced what he was going to be speaking about today, how many of you thought, oh, no, he's not? I did. I even asked him. I said, you're really not going to talk about this today, are you? Yeah, I am. Do you know how hard it is to be a pastor's wife sometimes? <laughs> I never know what he's going to say, and sometimes I'm sitting in the seat with fear and trembling. Because, you're, you know, he's, he's going to say what he wants to say. Um, but I can tell you that, especially what he's talking about today and the troubled times of this day and age in our country. Uh, he will speak with passion. He will speak with compassion. He's done his homework. And uh, as long as I've known him for probably 42, 43 years, we've only been married to 40 of those, but um, he, uh, he loves God. And he loves God's word, and he's always tried to be um, faithful in delivering God's message with truth and honor. And he loves people. Can't tell that, can you? Anyway, and he loves every one of you. And so today, um, I know that you'll listen, and I've been kind of studying some things this week uh, and asking myself questions, you know, um, like... And I know many other people ask these questions, too, like life. You know, there's life and there's death. Well, we know where life came from, you know, as, as believers. But the question is going around now, how did life start? When did it start? How did it start? So I've been thinking about that a lot, and I kind of know some of the answers to it. But um, I learned something this week. Because I think as we continue to ask questions, we will continue to learn and we will continue to grow. So I just want to share this little thing. It might be a little embarrassing. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story. But I was watching this video, uh, little clips about, you know, life and abortion and just all that stuff that's going on these days. And there was a scientist that came on this little video clip. And he said he was amazed. He's talking about when does life begin? And so I was listening to it, and he says, you know, you have to have a man, and you have to have a woman. And, you know, the man has his little, little seed, you know, that is when it's, not going to the details here, but, <laughs> but, you know, he was talking about the moment of when the one gets into the woman's egg and fertilizes it. Do you know what happens right at that moment? Because he's got all the little technological abilities to watch somehow. 
She says, at that exact moment, when the sperm enters the egg, there's a little flash of light. It's like that is when life begins. And you know what? We've been told many times as women that, especially like in the first trimester, that that's just a little blob of tissue. Well, let me tell you, our God created us, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The moment that little flash goes off, I don't know all the complete details, but it's amazing. Those cells start immediately. They start dividing and dividing and, and multiplying. That is not just a glob of tissue. That is alive and active, and it is got the DNA from the father's side and the DNA from the mother's side. And that new life has begun at that moment. And it is continuing and continuing to, to create this new little creation. And I, I just was kind of blown away by all that, you know, and I just thought, wow. We have no idea all that's going on inside of us, and it's a new little body inside of our body. And we as women have the privilege of having that going on inside of us. And bringing that life, you know, that's a gift to us. But anyway, Chuck's going to talk about all of this this morning. And I just, I just wanted to share with you what I learned this week. And I was kind of fascinated again about another aspect of God's creation of us. And, you know, and he's a man, and I'm a woman. So, you know, sometimes they don't want to hear a man talk about stuff that especially pertains to us women, but I think he'll do an okay job, so just, <laughs> anyway, well, I'm going to pray for him now, and um, we'll ask the Lord's blessing on it for sure. Lord Jesus, we just love you so much, and we love each other, and we are amazed at your creation of everything, the world, the trees, the plants, the oceans, the birds, and animals, and especially as humans, that we are created in your image. We are definitely fearfully and wonderfully made. And help us to remember where life comes from. It comes from you. And Lord, now I pray as Chuck opens up your word and the things that he's learned this past week or two, that you would, Holy Spirit, speak through him, that you'd make it clear, and that we would have open ears and hearts, and that we would learn also and that as we would, we pray peace and calm over our nation, Lord, we just help us to love others and no judgment, just love and compassion because you taught us how to love because you first loved us. Help us all to show that kind of love to others. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thank you, honey. <clears throat> you made me cry. <clears throat> Actually, you'll have, you have no idea how much I had to pay her to say all those nice things <laughs> about me. <laughs> Kathy and I actually missed out on 20 years of American culture during our time in Taiwan from 1987 through 2006. Can you imagine life without Seinfeld? Yeah, that's me. 
when you haven't been part of a culture and you enter it or you re-enter it after a long time, nothing sneaks up on you. You haven't been in the pot that's being brought to a slow boil with all the other frogs. And you haven't been part of the subtle cultural shift, so you notice things. And that's not an indictment of anyone like all of you who haven't lived outside of American culture for that long. It's just part of my journey. And I think that how we respond to the things that happen around us are always influenced by our personal journey. So not long after my family returned to the States after 20 years in Taiwan, I noticed these. Bumper stickers, coexist. I had to ask around what that was. Then I saw zebra killers should be put in stripes. Save the dogs and whales. And then keep abortion legal. I asked, those last two were on the same vehicle. So... You know, I, I thought about coexist. Hmm, yeah, that's right. We need to learn how to do that better. Christians should lead the way here. But then I thought, we really want to go out of our way to save the animals, but then fight for the right to abort our babies. And I began to ask myself, what's wrong with this picture and this place and where have I landed? Incidentally, we landed in Sky Harbor on July 26th and we flew straight from the jungle to the desert and we got off the plane. Actually, we weren't even in the airport yet. We were going down the that thing from the door on the plane into the airport, and I thought, oh my gosh, we've landed in hell, and <clears throat> yeah, well, it was 117 yesterday at my house, yeah, <clears throat> then I saw this bumper sticker, and life was good again, is there life after death, touch my truck and find out, I thought, okay, I'm back, I know where I am now. I can relate. All seriousness aside. You know, uh, one thing I began to notice about Americans, and even American Christians, and please know that throughout this message, I've been looking at myself in the mirror, so I'm throwing myself in there too, is that there isn't a lot of clear thinking and talking about complicated issues in our society, like abortion, homosexuality, or even sexuality for that matter, social justice, racism, drug use and abuse, the whole homelessness issue, poverty, the purpose of government, election integrity, the right to vote, gender identity, the border, and on and on and on. And I noticed that many American Christians have abdicated their command to love God with all their mind to loving their political party without their mind. And 
that applies to every issue, and it doesn't matter which party you're a part of. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or Independent or Green or Libertarian. We've stopped thinking deeply and critically about important issues, and we simply appeal to our political party or our tribe or mainline media to tell us what to think. And the result, people, is endless confusion and division without solution. So, I want to begin our, our time this morning before we dive into talking about this social issue right now in America that's swirling and boiling around abortion with a story from the Bible, and it's a Jesus story. And you can find it in Mark chapter 12. And the heading in your Bible is probably something like the greatest commandment. So before we tell that story, though, I want to give you the, the setup for this, its context. And our, the problem with how we approach the Bible a lot of times when we read it devotionally is we take a passage or a verse out of its context, and there's so much that we miss that I think the writers are trying to tell us when we approach God's Word that way. So here's the setup for the story that we're going to deal with this morning. The Sadducees, and Mark tells us, he says, the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. So he wants his readers to understand that this is a basic tenet of the party of the Sadducees. Um, and the best way that I could explain the socio-political religious environment of Jesus' day is that there were two main parties, and they were both legal, according to the commandments, the legal system of the Hebrews, and they were somewhat political, and they were the leaders of God's people of Israel. They interpreted the law for them. They set public policy for them. They encouraged a certain response and outlook toward the enemies of Israel and all of this. And the, the two main parties were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're the ones that show up in the Gospels all the time. And um, without casting any shade on our current situation, but to help us understand how similar these situations are, the Sadducees probably would be best described as being on the far left. They were rather liberal, to use a term that we use today, while the Pharisees were way, way over on the right and might be called conservatives. Now, the Sadducees um, just outright rejected many obvious things that the Scriptures had taught, such as uh, the resurrection, life after death. They didn't believe in angels and things like that, which set them apart from their counterparts, the Pharisees, who had a rigid interpretation of the law of Moses to a fault, they were the ones that invented multiple additional rules just to keep 
the people of God from breaking the few original rules. And their insensitive, judgmental attitude was harmful to the people. And it's very interesting that the political party, the religious party that Jesus most often found himself in conflict with was not the liberal side, the Sadducees, but the conservative side, the Pharisees. In fact, if you want to see how Jesus really felt about these people, read Matthew 23. Um, it is not a good example of how to win friends and influence people. He blasted these conservatives for their judgmental attitude and for their hypocrisy and how they interpreted the law. But anyway, the Sadducees came to Jesus and they posed a hypothetical question to him. They said there were seven brothers and the first of them married and had a wife, but he died without any children. So as the law commanded, the next brother in line married her in order to produce children for his deceased brother, but he died without children and on and on and on down to the seventh brother and none of them left her any children. So the question was, since they all had her as a wife, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And their intention was to point out to Jesus and to everyone listening how ridiculous it was to think that there is actually life called the resurrection. And Jesus told them, he said, well, the very idea that you would pose a question like that to me shows me that two things. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Haven't you read that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And he left them in a pile of intellectual rubble right before his feet. Now comes our story. A teacher of the law came and heard them debating. And when he heard that Jesus had given them a good answer, commercial break. This guy was undoubtedly a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. Most of the teachers of the law were Pharisees. And when he heard that Jesus had given them, those people over there, a good answer. In other words, an answer that lined up with his party's view. He thought, yes, Jesus is on our side. And he asked him a question to garner further support. He said, teacher, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important, Jesus replied, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. A second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. I can't even imagine saying that to Jesus. <laughs> you are right in saying that God is one, and then there is no other but Him. And to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is greater than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus heard that he had given a wise answer, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're close, but you're not there yet. And from then on, no one dared ask him any other questions. While we're thinking about this, I want to just throw in another statement of Jesus. This is from John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus was speaking to the Jews who had believed in him, and he said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Hmm. I think there are a couple of implications from Jesus' statement here. And the first is that we don't yet know the truth. And secondly, we're not free. We're all slaves to something that holds us down. And apart from him and his teaching, we do not and never will know the truth. Jesus' teaching, his understanding and his view of the world is what sets us free from false explanations and views of the world around us. And if you believe that he was in on creation, as John tells us in the first three verses of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. If you believe that, then we, you can conclude that he ought to know. Today we're going to try to love God with our minds by making sense of the current noise around abortion. And the reason I think it's important for us to do this as a church is because I don't believe that God wants his people to be those who keep their heads in the sand while the world around them is swirling around an issue. He wants us to seek him about what he thinks in any given, any given situation. So, we'll have two objectives this morning. Number one is to be informed. I want to explain the lawsuit that was argued in the Supreme Court of the United States on December 1st, 2021, and finally decided on June 24th, just last month, 2022. And then we'll talk about the language around abortion and try to understand it clearly. Before we do this, <clears throat> be assured that at First Christian Church, we are for women, and we want to be sensitive to your needs in this matter, sisters. We believe in the sanctity of life, all human life from conception to birth, and so Unapologetically, that's how we approach this issue. Statistics tell us that in America, one out of three women will have an abortion by age 45. So, dear sister, if you are in this number, what we will learn and talk about today is not about you but about the whole issue of abortion itself. And I want you to know that we love you, 
There is no judgment or condemnation in this place or in me. So let's pray. Lord, please help us. We need you. We confess our need of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what I want you all to understand is that the Supreme Court judges just didn't get together the other day and say, hmm, let's review Roe versus Wade. What happened was a lawsuit back in 2021 between the... uh, the state health officer of the Mississippi Department of Health and the Jackson Women's Health Organization. And here's the issue, that Mississippi has a law on the books called the Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, and it provides that except in a medical emergency or in the case of a severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally or knowingly perform or induce an abortion of an unborn human being if the probable gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. So Mississippi still had this law on the books, and the state was taken to court. There was a lawsuit that the Supreme Court heard. Um, And... Interestingly, this case has been in argument and limbo now for almost a year and a half, and the decision finally came down last month. And here is the decision, and I quote, The Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey, now they're referring to Roe versus Wade, that's that case in 1973, and then almost 20 years later, They're referring to the case of Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. So in in shorthand, in the judge's decision, those cases are simply referred to as Roe and Casey. They're two separate cases, but they had a similar outcome. And so the decision says Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their selected elected representatives, which means the federal government on the Supreme Court level no longer can ban states from banning abortion. So we're removing that from the federal government from a constitutional decision and we're handing it back to the states and their elected officials to decide on at the legal legislative level. <clears throat> and here's, a, here's the, the judge's commentary on their decision. I'm reading from the syllabus, which is sort of a, a commentary on the judge's decision, which is really helpful. Um, Abortion presents a profound moral question. The Constitution of the United States does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Rowan Casey arrogated that authority. The court overrules these decisions and returns that authority to the people 
and their elected representatives. In other words, the Supreme Court decided we can't, there's no constitutional basis, and we'll get into that in just a minute and, exp and explain how they arrived at that decision. The Supreme Court at the federal level cannot prohibit states if they have laws that ban abortion. And so when they heard this case against the state of Mississippi, that's what got them to dig into the Constitution deeper and conclude that, oh, this court, nearly 50 years ago, made a decision that it really did not have the authority to make and that the Constitution gives no basis for. Um, now, there are those who disagree with that decision. Three of the judges did. Um, and I'm going to explain how the six that decided this came to that decision. The original argument used in Roe v. Wade was that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution to the U.S. implies the right to abortion. Now, specifically in this line referred to as the Due Process Clause, this line, only this line in the 14th Amendment, which deals with a lot of other things besides this, by the way, but only this line was referred to in both of these cases, Roe and Casey, nearly 20 years later. Here's the, here's the due process clause in the 14th Amendment. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's it. So <clears throat> the, the idea is, and we'll refer to this again, is that the word liberty in that phrase within the 14th Amendment guarantees a woman's liberty to have an abortion, and that no state can deny her that liberty. Um, we're going to get into the language that is around abortion right now and try to approach it from a sensible point of view so that we all understand it. Um, and before we do that, I just want to say that I'm going to stay up here after church for a time of Q&A. For any of you who feel that something wasn't clear or you have questions about any of this. I don't claim to be an authority, but I, I have been wading through the judge's decisions, and I have copies of all of them for you. If any of you are interested and you really want to be informed and you want to read the judge's decisions, you can borrow one of these for me. They're in three-ring binders, and I just ripped my bicep lifting those, and we will take a special offering today to help cover the cost of paper for printing all of this off. <laughs> the language around abortion is nuanced, and I think it prevents clear understanding. Nuances are intentional. It's a grammatical device that we use when we want to creatively refer to something without coming right out and saying it. But it often... Um, sometimes it's beautiful and uh, it, it, dig, it penetrates into the culture that the language represents and it can be really cool and sometimes it's not helpful at all. And I think it, this is one of those cases where it's not helpful. Much of the language defending abortion today came from the historical case Roe versus Wade in 1973. And here's the first phrase. And these are listed in your bulletin. If you want to take notes, they're right there for you. Um, the first phrase 
um, that we often hear about abortion is called the right to privacy. And the argument in Roe v. Wade was that the word liberty encompasses the right to privacy. And that an abortion is a private matter for a woman and therefore protected by the 14th Amendment. Almost 20 years later, Planned Parenthood versus Casey argued that the word liberty included freedom to make intimate and personal choices that are central to a person's dignity and autonomy. The court, our Supreme Court, recognized that this line of reasoning carried to its logical extreme would also license the right to illicit drug use, prostitution, and the like. And with this type of logic, there would be no limit to what a person could do as long as it's done privately. <clears throat> the next phrase that, that came out and became sort of a, a standard phrase when we talk about abortion that came out in the Roe v. Wade case is potential life. And the idea is it's not living yet as the argument goes. And this was the challenge to the Mississippi law in the case that the Supreme Court heard just last year, which refers to the object in the womb as an unborn human being. The Mississippi law calls it an unborn human being. And the lawsuit was, we don't like that language. We want to change it to potential life. And in this case that was heard by the Supreme Court, the court recognized that abortion destroys potential life too. They said, okay, well, it doesn't really matter if you force Mississippi to change the language in their law from an unborn human being to potential life. Abortion destroys them both. So what have you accomplished? Back when I was young and outspoken, the, the popular language around abortion was that it's not human yet in the womb. And I just, as a young man, I thought, well, there's something wrong with that. I, it doesn't compute. And I was actually invited to attend a pro-life march, which I did, and I'm not necessarily advocating that. In fact, I would say most of the time um, we preach to the choir, it does no good, people get upset, and it doesn't really help. But anyway, I did it, confession. And I made a poster to carry. And my poster read like this. What do you think it's going to be? A St. Bernard or a carrot? Because the common language was it's not human yet. And uh, <clears throat> I did not win a lot of friends and influence people necessarily with that sign. But I was thinking if it turns out to be a St. Bernard, we'll save it for sure. If it's a carrot, we'll, we'll give it to the vegans and let them decide what to do with it. And... Back then, I don't think there was even this idea of vegan. It wasn't even a thing. But uh, so <clears throat> my intent this morning, people, honestly, is not to be obnoxious, but to point out 
the absurdity of the intentionally nuanced language we use about controversial issues. And I'm calling us all back to some honesty. Here's an image of a fetus at seven weeks. I don't know. It doesn't look like a St. Bernard to me. There it is. Okay, let's move on to the next term surrounding abortion. It's viability. Most states have what we call a viability law, and a baby may not be aborted after reaching viability. And what that means is that if developmentally the fetus, the baby, whatever you want to call it, could survive outside the womb without life support, it may not be aborted. And the court recognized that this viability line is rather arbitrary and that viability changes with technologically, technological advancements. In honest terms, viability means if the baby can't survive outside the womb yet without help, then we can kill him or her in a clinic before he or she is born. If an unborn baby is not viable, then neither are people on life support viable who are laying in the hospital right now, adults. Do we question the value of their life? The glaring inconsistency here, people, is that most states still have a law which says if you hurt the pregnant mother and the preborn child she carries dies in the process, you're guilty of murder, regardless of the preborn baby's stage of development. Our hypocrisy has risen to the heavens. And I really don't care which side of the political line you sit on. We have to be honest when we talk about these things. The next phrase around abortion, especially right now, is my body, my choice. And I'm trying to be respectful. The problem with This reasoning is that although the unborn baby is inside your body, it is not your body. You are the privileged, blessed host to another distinct, sacred life. There are other laws that prevent this absolute bodily autonomy, is what we call it. Bodily autonomy. There are other laws that we have that we don't question that prevent absolute bodily autonomy, like the use of illicit drugs, driving while intoxicated. You don't get to do that. Sodomy, 
prostitution, and on and on. And we don't question the fact that, no, it's not okay for us to use our bodies or anyone else's body to do those things, except in this case. We will do all we can. And we need to speak this as the church, people, that we have compassion for women and pregnant women who find themselves in a tough spot. And we must commit ourselves to do all we can to help you carry this life to term so that it is not an undue burden. Which, by the way, is the next phrase around abortion right now. Pregnancy and childbearing, and here's the undue burden rationale, that pregnancy and childbearing affect the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation. And abortion, the ending of the pregnancy, facilitates a woman's ability to participate equally in the life of the nation and should be allowed. There are probably countless examples of women who have been pregnant and were still able to participate in the economic and social life of the nation. And when a pregnancy makes that difficult, what I'm saying is we should step in and help our sister, help that woman, so that she doesn't have to miss out on that privilege. The final phrase around abortion in our day is that abortion is women's health. Although we are very concerned about women's health, generally, abortion is not about the pregnant woman's health. It is definitely about ending the life of the preborn child. Only in cases where a medical decision must be made by the doctor to save the life of the mother over the life of the child she carries is abortion about a woman's health. And we have a medical ethic that is almost universally accepted, regardless of whether you consider yourself pro-choice or pro-life, that we give the difficult decision, the authority to the medical doctor to make that, to, to decide to save the woman over the child she carries if he deems that this is a life and death situation for her. And most of us agree with that ethic in medicine. That is about the woman's health. But typical abortions for other reasons don't seem to be in my mind. What does God say about the pre-born? In fact, you will hear that word more often now. It's an effort to describe the child in the womb as not living forever in an unborn state, but it is on its way to being born. It is pre-born. There's some scriptures. Mike and Priscilla are going to tag team and read them for us right now. The first one is Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. 
For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Mm. How many of you ladies have experienced that? There's something going on in there, isn't there? I think there are two challenges before us today. The first one is to love God with all our minds and to seek the truth about abortion. The second is to love and respond to each other as Jesus would. You might remember that when Jesus was questioned about the greatest commandment, on more than one occasion, he didn't stop with just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always added love your neighbor as yourself because he knew that unless we love our neighbor, we cannot say that we love God. The Apostle John captured that well in 1 John where he said, don't say that you love God if you don't love your neighbor. If abortion has been part of your experience, dear sister, know that Jesus is saying to you today, as he shelters you behind himself, what he said to a woman long ago who was being condemned by her peers and whom he was expected to condemn also, the woman who supposedly was caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus by a group of condemning men. And he faced off with those men, I imagine him sheltering the woman behind himself until they dropped their stones and left without a word one at a time, beginning with the oldest. And then Jesus turns to the woman and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus asked. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. And our children 
who have gone on before us are in heaven with Jesus now. Thank God that he heals and forgives and rebuilds our lives. He's in the business of doing that. I think perhaps the big idea this morning is simply that we love God with all of our mind and we love our neighbor as ourself. That we hold to the teaching of Jesus and seek the truth. He said, when you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In order to be fair, this week I visited a couple of clinics myself and uh, one was Choices Pregnancy Center, which is actually a local mission partner of FCC. They have a display on the plaza with lots of literature that you can pick up. I was very impressed with their heart and their desire to help women who are facing a difficult pregnancy or an economic um, challenge. And I also visited Planned Parenthood, my very first field trip to Planned Parenthood. Um, And I got some literature for them, talked with them a little bit, uh, just to be fair. And I can share with you about those experiences if you're interested. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper right now as a family. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in with us today. Stay tuned for more content coming soon. Have a blessed day.